This is Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff. Hola, hola. Soy Carla. It's Rachel here. What's good, y'all? I'm Ashraf. And I'm Madeline. Why Change is a podcast that brings listeners around the globe to learn how arts, culture, and creativity, especially as applied by young people, can change the world, one community at a time. You're invited each week to learn and laugh while exploring the question, why change? All right, let's get started. Hey there, Jeff here. I'm coming to you solo today for this episode of the Why Change podcast. As you may have heard in our most previous episodes, I just moved back home, closer to family, right on the ocean, in my home state of Maine. Maine has been in the news lately, unfortunately, as a result of a senseless and preventable tragedy due to gun violence and mental illness. Last week, the community of Lewiston, Maine, was shaken by a mass shooting. I've had a lot of thoughts on this, but I'm still collecting all of them and working through the grief, anger, and mourning alongside those who were directly affected. One thing I know, though, is my personal and my community's conviction to not let this be yet another tragedy followed by empty promises. If you followed my work, you've probably heard me speak about some of the inspiration behind creative generations underpinning research, much of which fuels the discussions here on Why Change. As the organization and original research was getting started, I was inspired by the young people, those young creatives from the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, who applied their creativity to advocate for policy change in the wake of a tragic mass shooting, which they survived. For me, this changed my perception about arts, cultural, and creative education. It was no longer about test scores. <laughs> Instead, I believe it's absolutely necessary so that our future generations can realize the visions and dreams they have for their lives. That's no different here in Maine. As I reflect on our recent loss as a community, I find reasons to celebrate. Over the last few months at Creative Generation, we focused some of our blogs on stories of creative change-making in our hometowns. I encourage you to read the series on the blog. My piece will come out soon, and it features Maine artists who focus their public art on messages of love and hope for years. It's been sort of a calling card for Maine's creative community. We're bound together by our values, perseverance, ethics, care, and love and hope. In today's Why Change episode, I speak to a longtime friend and colleague, a true elder in Maine's arts education community, and a great advisor and mentor to me over the years. Her name's R.G. Nestor. We talk about some of the pioneering work that she's done throughout the state and that's truly demonstrated the power of working together and investing in the people. This is embodied in the episode's title, None of Us is as Smart as All of Us a saying that has been attributed to many over the years. Let's go ahead and take a listen and think together about our investments today as hopes for the future. Welcome, RG. I am thrilled to introduce you to the Why Change podcast community. For a little bit of background, 
we first connected many years ago as two arts education professionals that had one thing in common, and it's that we both hailed from the state of Maine. You were working in Maine. I had grown up in Maine. And we worked together in a number of different ways on the national stage. And today, it's really great because since I've moved back, we've reconnected. And I love that. <laughs> and, you. you know, one of the things that I love most about you and your work and why I wanted you here on the Why Change podcast is because you have been a steadfast voice of advocacy for creative learning, arts in schools, and all sorts of opportunities for young people and young people just like me growing up in the state, as well as those adults who support their arts and cultural education. And not only just in the state, but also around the world. So I just want to thank you for being here on the Why Change podcast. Well, it's my pleasure and I appreciate the, the opportunity. And I just want to add that it's not just the state of Maine, but it's the great state of Maine and welcome <laughs> back. <laughs> well, thank you. It is the great state of Maine. Uh, so, you know, many people throughout the state and through your work around the country and across the globe really know you as a leader in arts education because of your work in state agencies and big national conversations. But I know that your work as an artist and educator began in the classroom and even earlier than that. So can you tell all of our listeners that story? How, how did you get to where you are today? Sure. I had the opportunity to teach grades K through eight for four years when I finished with a Bachelor of Arts in Art Education. And uh, then I switched and moved to Maine at that point. And I taught middle school for 30 years. And during that time period in 1995, I was named Maine state teacher of the year and because of that opportunity because of that um i had doors open and i had the opportunity to have a place at tables that i never dreamed at sitting at and i also was encouraged to use my voice the majority of what i did while i was in the classroom full time was integrated curriculum. And at that point, we were probably in the second iteration <laughs> during my career of integration. And visual art was at the heart of our curriculum at the middle level. I was on a team full time with the other content areas. And we would stand in the hall and there was this energy around ideas. And we went into our classrooms and then the walls started melting down between classrooms. And it was what I would consider true integrated learning when students would say, wait a second, I'm in the art room and I'm doing tessellations with the math concept or I'm in the math room and doing painting monochromatic color schemes, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't about cutting up the pie and giving out the pieces. And I love teaching in that way. And my colleagues were amazing. They had what I would call art at their heart and soul through their lens of social studies, science, math, and language arts. And during that time period from 95 until 2006, 
I had several opportunities to serve on state committees and was invited to national events. And the position at the Maine Department of Education for the visual and performing arts specialist was available and had been unfilled for about 12 years because of funding. It was not funded by the state legislature. And people kept saying, what are you going to do when they hire you? And I kept saying, they're not gonna hire me. You know, it's, it's, they probably have somebody in mind. And I applied and they offered me the position and I said, what am I gonna do? <laughs> so I thought it through and was able to have a leave of absence from my school district, which was kind of unheard of in those days and uh, went to the state and ended up in this cubicle world and thought I need to jump in with both feet like I would in my classroom or in my school or in my community and see where this goes. And two years later in place, we put along with two colleagues in the field, a music educator and another visual arts educator, uh, we put together an initiative that brought the community together. And we named it the Maine Arts Assessment Initiative because at that point, assessment and the arts in education was at the fringe in many states and certainly was in Maine. And our goal was to move assessment to the center of the conversation for arts educators. And we did that through this initiative by inviting teachers to be leaders and come together and learn about assessment and technology and leadership. And at the end of the first summer institute, we said, well, that went pretty well. Should we do it again? And we talked to the teach 24 teacher leaders we had that first summer and they said, well, yeah, but we're coming back. And yeah, we want more. So let's see who else will step up and take on this role of teacher leader. Through that process, we matched up people. So they had buddies uh, and we called them critical friends and they provided feedback to each other and they were moved to the center of their learning no differently than we were moving students to the center of their learning. And they stepped up and took on these leadership roles. They provided workshops at state conference. They did mega regional workshops all over the state. And we encouraged people to come out of their classrooms and to meet their people, meet their tribe, because in Maine, as in many big states where there are rural areas, there may be one music teacher or one art teacher K through 12 in a school with a hundred students or less or an island. And we all know that when we come together and bounce ideas off each other and receive feedback from each other, whether that be as an artist or as an art educator, that we learn more and, and build on each other's ideas and exchange ideas and the community gets larger and we support each other and trust each other. So uh, I was at the department for seven years and then I switched to the Maine Arts Commission and was able to take the initiative along with me. And 
as you know, quite clearly, Jeff, there are other educators in our community in the arts and they are teaching artists. And we invited teaching artists to come together and link arms with K-12 arts educators to once again, learn from each other and build on those ideas. And at that point, we had changed the initiative to the Main Arts Leadership Initiative, MALI, and through that initiative that continued, we, uh, by the year 2019, we had 130 teaching artists and teacher leaders across the state and had offered hundreds of workshops, state conferences, mega regional workshops, and built websites with resources that were then shared with the community. I also was able to start a blog while I was at the Department of Education and that ongoing communication really helped people realize that they weren't alone and that they had support and that there were ideas and resources available to them. I am a person who believes completely and none of us is as smart as all of us and bringing people together helped people share those ideas and their knowledge. The other thing that was pretty magical was for me that, that I never ever lost sight of being in the classroom and always circled back to the question, what is in the best interest of our learners K through 12 or pre-K through 12? And that that has always driven me and I try never to lose sight of that. Um, and, at, and at that point, at 2019, I left the Main Arts Commission and I circled back to the classroom uh, partially because I missed teaching and I was ready for a change in career. Uh, so at that point, I felt like the program was in really good hands. And since then, the program is now, the initiative is now called the Main Arts Education Partnership Leadership, Partners in Leadership, MAPLE. And uh, that program is in transition at this point. Wow. I. You know, there's so many things I love about that very uh, succinct story you just told of your career, everything from the deep integration of arts and other subject areas, really at the renaissance of arts integration at the time, to developing leadership pathways so that individuals can drive local change based on these big statewide or regional or global conversations, all the way to the approach of the role of state agencies as being resources and uh, collaborators with all members of the ecosystem. And, you know, the thing that I just want to underscore from what you said is about the humility, right? I think a lot of folks being named teacher of the year or being appointed to a statewide position do lose sight. And as you just stated, keeping that that laser focus on what is core to your values and your personal beliefs and pedagogies is really essential. And I, I just absolutely love that. I love everything about that. But I want to ask specifically about 
the development of those leaders in order to drive change at the local level. Because as a leader yourself, in the classroom, you are able to do that. In your uh, in every commission or table you were invited to, you were able to do that. And then you turned that around and cultivated hundreds of leaders throughout the state to be able to take what they learned from each other and drive local change, which is the whole point of this podcast. So reflecting back on that chapter of the story, what lessons have you learned that we may want to know? That's a great question and something I've been thinking about recently as the initiative goes through this transition. One of the components was never mentioning we want to we, we want to provide the opportunity for you to learn, it was really about none of us is smart as a, none of us is as smart as all of us. So coming together for the opportunity to build on your knowledge is different than come together to learn, in my opinion. It was validating that each individual teacher has a lot to offer and we can use that in our classroom but unless we open that door and move out of that classroom or invite people into our classroom in multiple ways whether it's through technology or opening that that physical door we're keeping that all inside so first and foremost was building relationships with people and ensuring that they realized that they had something to offer. And so they wanted to share and they turned around and, and did that. But we did a lot of work with what does leading from the classroom look like? What does it sound like to advocate for arts education? How do I find a place at the table. And what we learned because of the two people that established the initiative with me, Catherine Ring and Rob Westerberg, that each of us were different and we came into it with strengths and then collaborated and the teacher leaders were an extension of that collaboration and building on knowledge. And we practiced what, what that elevator speech was. We, we wrote the elevator speech and then we practiced the elevator speech. And so that learning was unpacked at many levels and encouraging people to use their voices in a positive way. And then the unintentional consequence was they were invited to the table because of what they had to offer and that their administrators and their colleagues realized that. And when we talk about assessment, who does assessment better than the arts? Portfolios, uh, 
authentic work. I mean, there's just so many components of assessment that the arts do really well and sharing their knowledge around that made for a stronger community within their school. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Some of these topics like assessment and education and integrated pedagogy, they're not, you know, the most fascinating topics out there. So getting good at talking about them is is a real um a real lift sometimes. So that's a that's a tremendous a tremendous success from you know my viewpoint, especially as a as a former arts advocate and um, someone working in the public policy realms. But some of the documents that we created within the initiative, and one of them we call our "This We Believe" statements, and there are several of them, and they're briefly defined. So when we came to the table, we built these belief statements, and then we interwove them into the workshops. Each individual teacher interwove them into the workshops that they were taking out into the field. So there was some common knowledge and common language. And we all know the critical importance of advocacy. Well, what does that mean? And what does that look like in the arts? So I just want to make sure I add that. And I think I'm also curious because one of the other connections that you've drawn is not only between, you know, teacher leaders in the state to each other, but also connecting your work here in Maine to sister communities abroad, uh, specifically in, in Africa. So I'm curious, how did you get involved in these international efforts and what takeaways have you learned from those exchanges? I was working with Lindsay Pinchbeck, who is the founder and director of Sweet Tree Arts, which is in a tiny community in Maine, in Hope, Maine. And uh, I was on her board of directors for her Sweetland School. And she said, what if we put together a proposal for this organization called Hundred? And it's capital H-U-N-D-R-E, capital E-D dot org. And I encourage your listeners, if they're not familiar with the 100 organization, to check that out. And so we had looked at 100. And at the same time, we, I had been considering going to Malawi, which is a, a small country in Africa for those people who may not know. And Malawi is a country where a former student of mine had been to and was in the Peace Corps. And while she was there, she met children who had no parents living under a bridge and decided to start an orphanage. And I had been following her work for years and I reached out to her and said, is there anything I can do to help support your work? And she said, would you go to Malawi and do workshops with the teachers that will help improve the test scores? <laughs> and I chuckled and said, no, I'm not interested in that. However, I would be interested in doing arts integration workshops 
And a byproduct or an unintentional consequence of that might be that the test scores could be improved because in the US, and there are plenty of studies that show the impact, positive impact on student learning and achievement in the arts or it, across the board because of the arts or arts integration. So I mentioned it to Lindsay and she said, are you going to go? And we went back and forth and I was nervous because I've traveled a lot, but had never been out of the country by myself. And I hadn't been to Africa. So I was a little hesitant and I, I could tell there was a little bit of interest there. And I said, are you interested in going? And she said, yes. And, uh, and I said, okay, well, let's talk about this a little bit more. We got together again and she said, what have you decided? And I said, I'm very interested and I would be even more interested if I knew that we could partner and create something together to take there to these teachers. And she said, if you say yes, I am next to you on the plane. So we designed a 10 day workshop, arts integration. We went to Empamilla, which is a small village in Malawi, which you get there by traveling from the airport in La Longway, a very long windy dirt road, worse than any of the dirt roads in Maine, up and down and around and round. And we arrive at this little village that had been built for the Go Malawi program. And there was a staff there of, a, which was a, a chef and a, a cook and a cook's helper and a grounds person and a security person and a director and assistant director of Go Malawi. And the assistant and the director were the two children that were found under the bridge when my former student went there originally. And one of the teachers in the school was the third child. After a while, she decided they didn't need an orphanage, but what they needed was support for education and clean water. So we launched into these workshops with these 12 amazing teachers. And they would show up at lunchtime and we would have this amazing meal together. And being of Greek background, there's nothing like coming together with people and sitting down and sharing a meal and food and conversation. And then we would launch into these afternoon workshops, which varied a great deal. And our goal was every morning to go visit the school. So we would have an understanding of what the classrooms were like, what teaching and learning was like, what the environment was like. And our first day in at the school, there's buildings outside that have structures, but no windows, open windows. Uh, the temperature was, this was in July, the temperature was cold. I had three layers on, including a down vest. And the children, for the most part, were barefoot and had t-shirts on and dirt floors, and there were no supplies in the classroom, no, no closets, um, no materials, 
uh, the kindergarten teacher had a baby on her back and 120 children in this room with no desks, they were on the floor. And because of our observations and experiences and listening and learning, we of course learned more than we could impart, but we adjusted what we were doing back in the classroom with them. And every day we would go and learn something else and, and learn more. And we were so impressed with what they and how they were delivering curriculum and learning and lessons to these young people. For example, one teacher sang lines and students would repeat those lines and there would be movement and there would be rhythm. And so talk about integrating the arts they were living that and teaching in that way. And our support came by communicating with them about the amazing work that they were doing and to dig deeper into that and wider into that because applying what they were doing at an even larger level was helping them, helping the children learn and would see greater results from that. Um, at, the, at the end of a couple of years, it turned out that the test scores went up. <laughs> we, we actually, when we came back, we supported and encouraged other teachers to go. And um, at the end of five years, our plan was to go back and that would have been 2020. We had a team of mm. five teachers and teaching artists and we were representing all the arts when our, with our plan to go back. So unfortunately we could not go because of the pandemic, um, but between when we went in 2016 and 2019, I believe there were eight teachers that went and some of them had one high school art science teacher was all about clean water and did this really amazing projects with these teachers and those teachers um, in, in Malawi, you're not guaranteed to be in a school for a long term. So most of them have been spread out in other into other schools. And we stay, we are in contact with some of them. So we know that they continue this work and it's continuing through the country. So um, certainly reflecting on that uh, was a really amazing experience. We also started sewing clothes. We'd bring community members together here in our area of Maine and started sewing dresses and pants for the children and we were sending them over there and our goal was that each child in the in the village or about 500 would each receive one dress and one pair of pants boy or girl and um, beanie baby in the pocket and <laughs> a brand new pair of underwear and so it was a wonderful project to continue and to complete that. So tell me a little bit about this 100 organization. Let's go back to that. I want to know how you got connected there and what all you've done. So after we returned from Malawi, we learned about this 100 program, which is based out of Helsinki. And some of the earlier work with 100 was uh, actually done with Sir Ken Robinson. And 
we applied to be ambassadors or innovators with 100 and we were selected to be ambassadors and invited to Helsinki for the 100 summit and there were teachers from all around the world and they were selected to be there because of their innovation ideas that could be that would be impactful and the belief that every child should have the opportunity to learn and be the best people that they could be. So we went to Helsinki two years actually in a row and I continue to work in their academy to help select the next 100 innovations that are selected each year. And, and that organization is now eight years old. It's at hundred.org. And I suggest and encourage your listeners to check that out because it's an amazing organization. Well, you, that story is such a testament to, to several things, you know, to reflect back, I think the, the value of just knowledge exchange and the, I don't know, affirmation that the arts are so core to what we do, no matter where we are, that it's almost funny that we have to advocate for arts integration when human nature is to actually integrate our culture and creative expression into all that we do, be it lines, you know, in in, in your lessons or um, community building through sewing clothes or um building community around the, the culinary arts and, and food and gastronomy, right? The the notion that that we're doing workshops on arts integration when arts integration is actually deeply integrated into every aspect of human life. And we've actually just created systems that weed it out sometimes. Um but but all of that to say, you know, when we invest in these relationships, the human relationships between uh, folks, no matter where they are across borders or across a, a state or different classrooms or domains of education, that's actually what drives the change. I'm sort of picking up on this trend uh, in your career that it's about the people. It's about the people. And, you know, that's the thing that I love about our relationship, Archie, is it's about us, you know, regardless of job changes and 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 roles and things like that that human connection is really what drives it. But there's one other thing that I just want to name for our listeners about you that hasn't come out yet, which is your own artistry. Because that's something else that I have seen firsthand. You sort of embed in everything that you do. You haven't lost that. You haven't let the policy wonks kill your joy for the creativity or, you know, the pressures of teaching in a classroom, um, push out your, your artistic elements and you yourself are a visual artist. So tell me a little bit about how you've remained grounded in, in the arts. And and I know that you just published a book with your art in it. So tell me a little bit about that too. So as far as my own artistry goes, I have always sat next to my own students in my classroom and made art with them. I believe that each, each person is an artist and so I would interact with my students in that way. And I wanted them to see that I also am an artist. So I would be making art right next to them. I often had artist residencies in my classroom because I wanted 
students to realize the opportunities they had if they chose that field. So I've always been encouraged uh, to be an artist by a variety of people. I um, have was trained as a potter and became very interested in book making and, and papers and a variety of materials. And during the pandemic, I started meeting online every Thursday with an art group that was started by a retired art teacher. And we were working independently on our on our whatever medium we wished to be doing in our homes while we were on Zoom every Thursday. And in February of 2021, one of them suggested, one of these people suggested that we make a collage a day. And I, it, I, it was reflections of being back in my undergraduate when, when we needed to produce a lot of artwork in order to improve our, our skills around whatever medium it was. And making a collage a day for me, the 28 days of February turned into about 40 collages mm. throughout that month. And I realized the importance of focusing and creating artwork to build on my own ideas and my own creativity. And a friend of mine who is a poet, uh, she's been writing poetry since she was five years old, but she had never really shared her poems. And I suggested that she take this online class with one of our teaching leader artists that was in our initiative. And so she signed up for it and really liked this instructor, Brian Evans Jones. And uh, we decided we would get together once a month, Jean and I, and that we would work on the idea of, I would make art in, inspired by her poems. And about halfway through, I felt like the art was the frosting on the cake. And we know that that's not true integration. So we switched and Jean started writing poems that were inspired by my art. Mm. And it became this wonderful collaboration, which we called a collaboration and not a collaboration. <laughs> and decided we would do five poems and illustrations for each season and that the book would have 20. And there are some end papers in it as well. So uh, we published it in, just came out this September, 2023 and it's called Catching Fireflies. Oh, and I love that. Yeah, we, we one of the poems is a reflection of, of childhood and catching fireflies and doing other summertime things and so in one of the poems it she talks about catching fireflies so that's where the title came from well you know one of the ways that we really think to connect people here on the why change podcast is certainly listening to their stories but also going a little bit deeper into sort of what what makes you tick what makes you um interested and sustained in driving the type of change that you have in your work. So as we get to know folks all around the world, we seek to ask the same few questions in rapid succession of everybody. So 
that's how we'll conclude today, RG. Are you ready? I am. <laughs> First, who inspires you? I believe that I stand on the shoulders of many, many giants. And probably the biggest giant in my world is my mother. She was enthusiastic. She was spirited. She was willing to take chances, jump right in, stand up for what she believes in and advocate. She taught three generations of children in our Greek community to dance Greek and always encouraged me. And I was the youngest of four to be who I am. And, and I stand on the shoulders of many giants in education who have inspired me and my students have probably been the biggest inspiration, uh, the drivers. And I have two amazing sons who are in their thirties and I love seeing their pathways and watching them continue to develop as human beings. And probably the biggest of all is my husband because he is unique in every way. He's a main guide registered main guide and he has been a voice for guides for many years in the state caring greatly about our state and policies that help protect our state and the outdoors that we all love here in in our state what keeps you motivated i'm fortunate to have a lot of energy and <laughs> I like to contribute and like to bring people together to contribute. The town I live in, Union, is celebrating their 250th this year, the Sester Centennial. <laughs> and I volunteered to be on the committee and uh, love working towards a goal like that. And uh, so I, I think you know, having ideas that I can see are part of solutions and not part of problems and taking those ideas and taking action around those ideas. Where are you most grounded? Oh, <laughs> that is a great question. Hmm. Depends on the season, depends on the weather. I love the snow, so being outside when it's snowing, I'm definitely grounded there. I love being in my kayak in the summer on water. I love hanging out in the boat while my husband's fishing. I love taking pictures. I love being with people and challenging ideas and having conversations to learn. So I'm grounded in lots of places. I. In the last couple of years, I've been reading a lot more non-education pieces. And I think that I'm reminded every day that I have so much to be grateful for when I read other people's stories and when I hear stories. Part of the Sester Centennial is collecting stories. That's what one of the things I've been working on. And um, there was an urgency around interviewing the hundred, our oldest citizen, who is 102. And so it was easy to say, to make that list, here are the things that need to be accomplished. And lists really help me stay focused. I 
I have lots of lists. I get up in the morning, I check my list, I know what I'm doing and that, and I like to accomplish those things. So that helps me stay focused. And, ha uh, you know, with, with Jean, with the book, we met once a month, we'd have a conversation about where we were and how things were going, bounce ideas off each other, set some goals and move forward with those. So organization. And lastly, why change? Well, when we look at what's going on in the world, there are a lot of really amazing things. There, there are classrooms across the state of Maine where teachers are doing amazing work, where students are stepping up as leaders. Recognize, for me, I recognized, um, I don't know how many years ago it was, maybe 10 years ago, that an education system will never get there. It will never be at that one place that in order for an education system to meet the needs of every single student, there has to be change. Without change, without transitions, without development, without open communication, there, we, we cannot meet the needs. We are in a different place in the world. And then we were even three years ago, let alone 35 years ago. So it's critical that we continuously look at what we can do and how we can change in order for each of our learners to be successful and for the world to break down some of these differences to compromise, to come together at the table so people can be happy, so they can share love and be healthy and live their best life. Well, that's a fantastic note to end on. Argy, thank you so much for joining this episode of the Why Change podcast. It was lovely spending time with you and your generosity in sharing your reflections, your ideas, and hope for the future. So thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Why Change podcast, and a special shout out to RG for joining me today. In light of the recent tragedy, I encourage our listeners to check out our friends over at Enough Plays to End Gun Violence. We'll drop the link in the show notes. Also, if you've been affected by the tragedy in Lewiston, if you need support or want to help, please visit the website of Governor Janet Mills, which aggregates resources and opportunities located at maine.gov slash governor slash mills slash Lewiston, or find the link in the show notes. I'll catch you next time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. All sources discussed in this episode are located in the show notes. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Also, you can write us at info at creative-generation.org. We would love to hear your ideas, the topics you want to learn about, and why change matters to you.
This episode was produced by me, Jeff M. Poulin. Our artwork is by Bridget Woodbury. Our editor is Katie Rainey. The podcast theme music is by Distant Cousins. A special thanks to our contributors, co-hosts, and the team at Creative Generation for their support.